Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode includes disturbing content, including violence and elder abuse. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Have you ever seen one of those optical illusions where, at first glance, the picture seems to be one thing, but once you take a closer look, it's actually a different scene altogether? There's a famous one that comes to mind of a vintage black and white drawing by Charles Allen Gilbert, and it's called All is Vanity. When you first look at the drawing as a whole, it looks like a skull, but if you look more closely at the details of the drawing, You see that it's actually a young woman sitting at a vanity, staring into a mirror, her head and reflection making up the eyes of the skull, and her perfumes on the vanity table make up the teeth. In this illusion, something that initially looks sinister turns out to be quite innocent, but what happens when the opposite is true? Dorothea Puente was born in 1929, and she sadly lost her parents at a young age. She bounced around from orphanages and families, but she never really had a stable home life growing up. Eventually, she got into sex work to make ends meet for herself. After a while, Dorothea met her first husband, a soldier named Fred McFall. In 1945, when Dorothea was just 16 years old, the couple was married and attempted to start a life together in Nevada. In the first two years of the marriage, Dorothea gave birth to two daughters, but it quickly became apparent that her maternal instincts hadn't really developed. Both daughters were given up by Dorothea. One was given up for adoption and one was given to family members. Dorothea's marriage to Fred ended in 1948 and Dorothea then moved to San Bernardino in Southern California. She was arrested for writing a fraudulent check, and she went to jail for a few months. After her release, she met a man named Axel Johansson from San Francisco, and the pair got married in 1952. After the wedding, the couple moved to Sacramento, which is just about an hour and a half's drive from San Francisco. But it wasn't a peaceful marriage. By many accounts, the pair argued constantly, due in large part to Dorothea's penchant for alcohol and the company of other men. In 1960, Dorothea was arrested for offering to perform oral sex on an undercover police officer in return for money, and she spent 90 days in jail for that. In 1966, Dorothea's second marriage to Axel ended after 14 years. She married again just two years later in 1968, but it's likely that that marriage was only in order to get the man that she was married to U.S. citizenship, and that marriage ended after only about a year. 
It was around this time that Dorothea opened her first caregiving center in Sacramento. It was a rehab facility and it was focused on alcoholics and drug addicts and really attempted to make these people better. The center was actually really successful and Dorothea was making a good amount of money running the center. She became a really positive figure in the Sacramento community. You know, she would donate to a bunch of different social causes and she even has pictures of her like hobnobbing with politicians even up to Ronald Reagan. It really appeared like she was trying to help those around her. Social workers would often send people to Dorothea because she was held in such high esteem. But what these social workers didn't know was that the center wasn't licensed and that Dorothea had developed a habit of her own. She'd begun to fraudulently sign over her tenants' federal social security checks to herself. Regardless, things really started to look like they were finally good for Dorothea. She married her fourth husband, Pedro Montalvo, in 1976, but they divorced later that same year. Still, life was pretty good for Dorothea. You know, she was making a steady living from the rehab center and, well, she was making even better money scamming the social security checks of her tenants. But Her scam was discovered in 1978, and she was arrested for signing those checks over to herself. For these crimes, she received five years of federal probation, and it prohibited her from running a boarding house again, but she didn't actually serve any hard time for this. So around this time, Dorothea was 49 years old, and she essentially had to start from scratch. You know, she had been doing caregiving for a pretty good amount of time. And before that, you know, she was getting money from her husband or doing sex work. So she didn't really know what else to do besides caregiving and scamming. But this time, instead of running a boarding house herself, she was now providing in-home care to elderly patients who needed help with just basic necessities of life. Her duties included things like making sure they had food, clean clothes, their medication was ready to go, and just that they had someone around in case they needed anything. It was also around this time that she discovered she could make herself look older in order to gain more trust from her victims and their families. She realized that if she could make herself look like an innocent, you know, grandmotherly type figure, no one would suspect her of being a stealing con artist. You know, inherently, we want to trust our elders, especially someone who looks very innocent and almost frail themselves, and she took advantage of that. So she started dressing in older women's clothes and telling people she was in her 60s, even though, like I said, she was only around 49 years old. According to court records, during this time, she drugged at least three elderly women whom she was providing care for and stole from them things including valuable jewelry and cash. In 1982, a 61-year-old friend of Dorothea's named Ruth Monroe moved in with Dorothea. Ruth's husband had been undergoing treatment and he had a very serious illness. So instead of continuing to live by herself, Ruth decided it would be better to live with her friend, Dorothea. 
she trusted Dorothea, you know, she knew her socially. Um, they had even almost gone into business together. So it just made sense for her to move into an empty room that Dorothea had in her house. But within just a few weeks, Ruth had died from an overdose of prescription drugs. Although Dorothea told the authorities and Ruth's children that Ruth had committed suicide because she had been depressed about her husband who was terminally ill, Ruth's kids, her sons, were absolutely shocked because Ruth had been really happy leading up to the time of her death. She had grandchildren, she was enjoying her life. I mean, yes, she was very sad because of what was happening with her husband, but otherwise she was in really good spirits. But police believed Dorothea and they ruled Ruth's death a suicide. Just after Ruth's death, Dorothea was arrested for the string of thefts against the elderly people that she was drugging. A man named Malcolm McKenzie had witnessed her drugging him and then watched her steal from him while he was completely incapacitated. This time, instead of probation, she was sentenced to five years in a California prison. While she was incarcerated, a prison psychologist diagnosed Dorothea with schizophrenia and he noted that she was a very dangerous individual and had zero signs of remorse for what she had done. While in prison, she became pen pals with a 77-year-old man from Oregon and his name was Everson Gilmouth. The pair corresponded and when Dorothea was released early for good behavior from prison, Everson picked her up and drove her back to Sacramento. The pair were soon talking about getting married and seemed like they were in love. Dorothea knew that her check scam could work. And after being caught twice, she knew that the only way to actually get away with it was if no one knew that she was stealing from them. And what better way to make sure that they wouldn't know than to kill them? She figured that if she was able to kill somebody and hide the body so nobody knew that they were dead, she could continue to receive the benefit checks and sign them over to herself without being caught. She decided that although she was forbidden from running a boarding house, those were the terms of her probation, she was going to do it anyways. She opened up the boarding house in a beautiful Victorian-style home located in downtown Sacramento at 1426 F Street. The home is much deeper than it is wide. So from the street, it doesn't look very large, but it actually goes back the full length of the lot. And it has a somewhat small yard just to the left of the house that, again, runs the full depth of the lot, but isn't very wide itself. Her next victim, though, was Everson Gilmouth, her boyfriend who had picked her up from prison. While getting the boarding house up and running, she hired a handyman to build a large wooden box for her. Now, she told this handyman that she was filling it with junk and just other random things from the house that she no longer needed. And once she had filled it and boarded up the box herself, she convinced this same handyman to transport it for her. So she actually helped him transport it, and as they were driving along with the box in the back of this truck, she had him pull over at a riverbed, and the pair dumped this box there. A few months later, fishermen discovered the box, and they opened it 
to find the decomposed body of an elderly man. Everson Gilmouth would remain a John Doe for three years. Now, after his death, Dorothea continued to collect Everson's social security checks and would even go so far as to write to his family, claiming that he had been ill and therefore couldn't contact them himself. The boarding house, though, thrived under Dorothea's watch. She once again became a really positive force in the community. She had really strong alliances, and especially within the Latino community. Some people even referred to her as La Doctora, since she would often take in those with mental illness or addiction. While running the boarding house, Dorothea would be sure to collect all of the mail for her tenants, and then she would take the checks from those mails and pay herself. Then she would basically give the tenants the remaining funds after paying herself. And although this may seem odd, because she was housing a lot of addicts, it was actually seen as kind of a positive practice so that they had their basic expenses paid for before they received any of their other money. One of Dorothea's tenants was a mentally disabled man from Louisiana named Alberto Montoya. Alberto was a bit of a fixture around downtown Sacramento, but when his caseworker suddenly couldn't find him, the caseworker notified authorities. It wasn't like him to just go missing, and he was really in close contact with his caseworker, so his caseworker was concerned that something had happened. Since Montoya's last known residence was the boarding house, that's where investigators went first. And on November 11th, 1987, investigators spoke with Dorothea directly at the boarding house. She told the agents that Montoya had gone on vacation and she told the story about him going to Mexico and then taking off for Utah, but she hadn't really seen him since then and she didn't know exactly where he was at the time. But she agreed to let them search the house. She was really open with them and said, sure, go through the house, look through the rooms, and they found everything to be really neat and tidy, really nothing suspicious. But investigators weren't content with leaving just yet. They had heard rumors that were circulating about holes that Dorothea had a handyman dig in the yard. The investigators came prepared with shovels, and they asked Dorothea if they could dig in the yard just to make sure that everything was in order. She allowed it. She said, sure. And she even lent one of the investigators a shovel. After digging about three feet down in an area of the yard that had soil that was kind of disturbed, lead detective John Cabrera hit what he thought was a tree root. He describes trying to jimmy the tree root loose, trying to kind of hit it with the shovel, but it just wouldn't come loose. So he knelt down and found out that what he thought was a root was actually a human femur bone. When Detective Cabrera brought Dorothea out to the yard and showed her what he had discovered, she seemed genuinely shocked. Her hands went to her face. She said, oh my goodness, you know, I don't know what happened. There had been a lot of other people living here over the years, so she seemed really genuine. That day, they brought Dorothea into the precinct for more in-depth questioning around the remains that were found in the yard and the missing tenant, Alberto Montoya. But for hours, Dorothea remained steadfast in her story. She 
you know, retold it the same way, and they really couldn't find any holes in what she was saying. So investigators decided to allow Dorothea to return home for the night. But investigators returned the next morning, and a much larger crew came with them, including a crew of medical examiners. They started a full excavation of the yard. They wanted to make sure they checked everywhere that they could to uncover any bodies because there had been rumors of these holes being dug for, you know, quite a while. And so they wanted to make sure that nothing else was going to be found in the yard. A large crowd of onlookers and media gathered right outside of the home. The news about the body that was found had spread really quickly, and the public was hungry for more of the story. Dorothea told Detective Cabrera that all of the commotion was making her really nervous and that she'd like to go get a cup of coffee at a nearby hotel. He agreed to let her, and he actually walked her most of the way over to the hotel so that she wouldn't be harassed by the crowd and the media that had gathered. Exactly 21 minutes after Detective Cabrera returned to the boarding house, a second body was found buried about a foot deep in the yard. It was then obvious that the bodies had been placed there on purpose, recently enough for Dorothea to be at fault or at least know what was going on. Police raced back to the hotel where Dorothea was getting coffee, but she was already long gone. Instead of getting coffee, she had taken a cab to Stockton, and from there, she hopped on a bus for Los Angeles. Once she arrived in LA, she checked herself into a motel and turned on the TV to find coverage of her home on the news. Investigators ultimately found seven bodies buried in the yard, including that of Alberto Montoya, the tenant whose caseworker had reported him missing, which led investigators to the boarding house in the first place. Most of the bodies were wrapped in sheets or cloth. The final victim was discovered in a sort of fetal position, but was missing her head, hands, and feet. The medical examiner had her team search through all of the flower pots on the property, but to this day, the head, hands, and feet have never been found. During this time, the family of Everson Gilmouth saw the coverage and alerted authorities to the fact that Everson had been missing after living with Dorothea. From there, they were able to identify the body found three years earlier in the wooden box in the river as Everson adding to the tally of bodies that Dorothea was responsible for. After five days of searching for Dorothea, investigators finally caught a break when they received a call from a man claiming to have just gotten drinks at a bar with Dorothea in Los Angeles. The man told them where Dorothea was staying, and they immediately arrested her and charged her with nine murders, Seven from those buried at the boarding house, plus Everson Gilmouth and Ruth Monroe. Although Dorothea had preyed on addicts and those who she thought wouldn't be remembered, the medical examiner was able to identify all seven of the bodies and find the families so that they could receive a proper burial. All seven of the bodies that were recovered had the prescription drug Dalmain in their system although none of them had had it prescribed to them. Now, Domain is prescribed to treat insomnia, and when Domain is taken with alcohol, 
it can cause a person to become pretty much catatonic. And if enough is taken, it can cause the heart to stop. Dorothea Puente had a prescription for Domaine. Dorothea's trial started on February 9th, 1993 at the Monterey Courthouse, which is pretty far from Sacramento, but the trial had been moved to Monterey after the court decided that it would be unable to get an untainted jury pool in Sacramento because of the massive amount of media around this case. Throughout her trial, Dorothea claimed that her tenants had died of natural causes and that she did continue to cash their social security checks. She also admitted to burying their bodies in the garden so that she was able to continue collecting their checks and basically scamming them after they were dead. But she remained steadfast that she had never killed anybody and that she was a good caregiver. The prosecution argued that the domain alone was proof that she had caused the deaths on purpose in order to collect the checks from the deceased. In their closing arguments, the prosecution held up photos, not unlike the one I described at the beginning of this episode, to show the jury that things are not always as they appear. And although Dorothea looked like a frail grandmother that would bake you cookies and would never hurt anyone, she was in fact a ruthless killer. On August 6, 1993, after 23 days of deliberation, a jury found Dorothea guilty of three murders, though there was a single holdout jury member who would not agree to find her guilty of the other six murders. The holdout jury member claimed that there simply wasn't enough evidence that Dorothea had in fact caused the deaths herself and that what she was saying wasn't actually true. The three guilty charges were for three of the tenants that were buried in the yard. For these three murders, Dorothea received a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. The DA decided not to seek a new trial for these other six charges based on the fact that Dorothea would never see freedom again and the sheer cost of the trial wouldn't be enough to justify it. For the rest of her life, Dorothea claimed that she was innocent of killing anyone. She died in prison on March 27, 2011 of natural causes at the age of 82. The home at 1426 F Street is still standing, though the side yard has been paved over and artificial grass has been installed. The current owners are well aware of the history of the home, and they've even invited shows like Ghost Hunters to investigate it. They have a mannequin dressed just like Dorothea did when she left the home to grab a cup of coffee, and that mannequin stays on the front porch of the home. Signs are hung up around the outside of the home that say things like, the house is innocent, and trespassers will be drugged and buried in the yard. The house itself is quite beautiful, and looking at it today, you'd never know that it was a murder factory for a killer granny. The home itself is actually a good reminder that you can't judge something just by looking at it. Sometimes you have to dig a little deeper. We will be taking a brief break next week, but we'll be back with a new episode on September 21st. 
Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about Dorothea Puente's boarding house. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please leave us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. Tell your friends about us. We would really appreciate it. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Additional research by Amanda Pukert. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, My Favorite Murder podcast, a Sacktown Mag article titled Life and Death of Dorothea Puente, and the show World's Most Evil Killers.